Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I am joined today by two very special guests for the next instalment of our special summer series on European strategic sovereignty. And this time we are going to be talking about an incredible piece of pan-European research, which has been led by Ulrike Franke and Tara Varma, looking at how Europeans see the idea of strategic autonomy in all 28 of the member states of the EU. They have just released uh, an important new security scorecard called Independence Play, Europe's Pursuit of Strategic Autonomy. So to find out what's in the report and to talk about the bigger topic, we have Tara Varma, who's one of the two authors and now also the head of our Paris office and a senior policy fellow at ECFR. And my co-conspirator on this whole strategic sovereignty enterprise, Jeremy Shapiro, who's research director at ECFR and, and sitting with me here in London. So Tara's down the line from Paris and is going to tell us at the beginning, what is strategic autonomy? What's all the fuss about? Yeah. And how can we get it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, hi to both. I have to say it's quite a pleasure to present uh, this paper that we released it just before the summer. And it's been quite a ride. Uh, We've had interactions with uh, Europeans and non-Europeans on Twitter and other social networks on European strategic autonomy. As you both know, it's usually perceived to be a, a French concept, uh, and not only in Europe. It tends to be pushed, uh, tends to be seen as pushed by the French, because actually, for isn't France, it? Isn't it pushed by the French? What do you mean? Tends to be seen? Isn't it pushed by the French? Isn't this uh, a French idea? I think it is pushed by the French, but for a collective purpose. So you're saying it's France's gift to Europe, strategic autonomy. wants to offer some sort of a solution, uh, ideally a collective one, and one that all member states could agree upon at some point. But I guess it sees itself as uh, the one who's launching, uh, launching the debate. And I think this is what we're showing in the paper as well. We, we don't have a final answer on how we get there, but there is a methodology. And uh, there's certainly, again, a collective way, I think, to get there. I know that you haven't really, you know, told us exactly what it is, but I think it actually might be worth a little bit exploring this sort of question of the role of France in this thing, because actually that seems to be sort of central. I know it's, you know, where you sit as well. And it's quite strange from from London or even from Berlin that the the a lot of part of the problem with this with this idea seems to be people express, well, I'd love to do that, but I don't want to do it because the French told me to. I don't want... I don't want this to be a French idea. Is there a, is there a problem in your view in, in the work that you did? Is there a problem with French ownership? And is there a way of getting around that? Is there a way of sort of making this some more of a collective ownership, not just a sort of idea that France gives to Europe? I think actually this is happening in the real world already. The way Europe has acted in its relationship to Iran, the way uh, the British, German, and French foreign ministry released a joint communique yesterday on the situation in the South China Sea also proves that this is actually happening already. I don't think, and to me, the ability for France, Germany, and Great Britain to release a joint declaration on a topic that doesn't seem to be the pro- you know, geographical preoccupation of these three countries 
shows that things are moving forward. And this is happening beyond the papers that our think tank is publishing and beyond the speech that the president is giving. And so I think we need to be more indulgent with ourselves and also be conscious of the efforts that are being made. So I'm not... The idea of strategic autonomy, I think, is still seen as a French concept and as an idea that France is pushing, but I think that also makes sense because actually for France, European strategic autonomy is a continuation of its own national strategic autonomy concept, which it defines as the ability to define and to act freely in an interdependent world. I think this could absolutely apply to actually European foreign policy. Um, contrary to actually what maybe many uh, member states think and maybe the US thinks, this does not mean that Europe will function in autarky. It doesn't mean that Europe is going to be self-sufficient. It means that it should have the ability to choose, depending on topics, with whom it forms alliances. And I don't think that's an unreasonable ambition for Europe to have. So, and I think it's also less problematic than many people put it, you know? I think so, there is a fear, and I understand that from many experts around Europe, that this is another buzzword that France is pushing for. But actually, in a way, Europe is already autonomous strategically. It just needs to put all this strategy into one coherent strategy and make it, make it more collective. <clears throat> So can we maybe go through some of the different dimensions? Because one of, I think what's very interesting about your survey is you've spoken to people in every single country and you've looked both at the places which readily accept it, those where it's more contested, um, and then you've looked at different ways that, that each country thinks about what strategic autonomy is um, and, and what it might actually mean in the future. Do you want to tell maybe go through some of those questions? So which countries like strategic autonomy? Um, there are quite a few who like strategic autonomy. There are also quite a few who are afraid of it or see it as a contested goal. Uh, one of the countries that we developed a bit on, on the more contested side is, uh, is Denmark. But that also makes sense because the country has opted out of EU defense cooperation. Uh, in 1992. And so it's not able to take part in any of the new initiatives that have been proposed on European defense cooperation, whether it, whether it be in the institutional format or more ad hoc formats such as the European intervention initiatives. Sweden as well has been quite reluctant to support the concept. And in a way, even Germany took a bit of time to, to get there because I guess it is also seen, uh, again, as a French concept, but more importantly for Germany, the idea is how do we, do we not anger our uh, American allies and American friends? And I think uh, they're in a conflicted position. Um, how do we ensure that we keep everyone happy and yet uh, Europe manages to pursue in its own interests? I think we've not found the answer yet. And typically, this is why we need to have conversations on this issue. But at the same time, Germany and Great Britain and France are capable of getting together and, and, and publishing joint, joint declarations on issues that are important to them and to the security of Europe. So you've got this great map where you look at, you color code the different countries and it looks like there are 17 countries that are okay with it. And then there are eight countries that don't like it. And then um, three or four countries that don't think it's very important. 
The, the second really interesting chart you have is, is uh, where you ask people, what does strategic autonomy mean? And you give people these two options. Is it about autonomy from other powers or is it about autonomy to conduct operations or is it both? Do you want to talk us through that? Yeah, absolutely. So actually, uh, autonomy is, is defined and has three main components, uh, autonomy of information, autonomy to decide, and autonomy to act. And for different member states, uh, it's either strategic autonomy can, can con- contain these three components. For some of them, it's none of those components. Quite a few countries, quite a few member states declare that they're unsure whether to pursue uh, European strategic autonomy at all. But they do declare that they are conscious of growing external threats to Europe and that they care about the place of, of Europe in the world. And so what we've noticed in uh, almost all of the questions and, and answers that we got in the survey is that member states are, are completely schizophrenic. They are afraid of their own shadow, as we say in French. Um, they, don't, they don't want so much for Europe to affirm itself, and they're, they're mostly afraid of what uh, the United States would do if, if uh, Europe actually stood, stood up for itself. 17 member states declare that the relationship uh, and the damage that European strategic autonomy could do to the relationship with the U.S. is, is their main concern. And yet, when we ask if Europe needs more military capabilities, how can Europe project itself as a world power, they all agree that we need actually military cap- capabilities close to what NATO has. And so it doesn't mean that they have to choose between the EU and NATO, but they're in this completely schizophrenic state of being afraid of themselves and yet having some some form of ambition for Europe too and for Europe to be able to act freely and decide freely in this interdependent world. Tara, it'd be interesting maybe, why don't we dwell on the US question for a little bit? Because I mean, I, I wonder whether it is a question of schizophrenia or if it's just the fact that everyone wants to continue free riding on the US for as long as they possibly can and they therefore don't want to do anything which um, leads the U.S. to precipitate its inevitable uh, downscaling of Europe in its strategic priorities. Um, and therefore, it's not that, that um, you know, their pr- number one preference is not to spend any money at all on, <laughs> on these issues and not to take responsibility for things because they're worried that it will encourage the U.S. to go, no? I, I think that's not totally true, Mark. They are spending money. They're just giving it to American industries. But well, they're, spending, they're spending famously rather less than 2% in the case of every single member state apart from uh, potentially Britain and, and France, um, depending on yeah. what accounting tricks you use to, to calculate those two budgets. And Britain had to shrink their GDP to do it. So. <laughs> but, I mean, but what do you think uh, the, the U.S., uh, dimension is going to be in the future because on the one hand you know member states as you said seven Tara said 17 member states worry about strategic autonomy because they think the US sees it as anti-American I think uh, the Europeans are are victims in a way of the double standard that the United States is imposing on them uh, they, the US has been um, I think pretty hard on the EU um, we saw this letter that was sent to uh, Federica Mogherini, the High Representative for Foreign Affairs, by two U.S. undersecretaries, uh, 
of the Department of State and, and of the Department of Defense uh, criticizing both the European Defense Fund and PESCO. Uh, and so they're criticizing uh, these efforts that are actually supposed to be helpful to help share the burden because they might go to European industries. And so in a way, it's a catch-22 for Europe. They need to spend more and to be able to rely more upon themselves. And every time there is an initiative or an effort that is made in that sense, then they actually get the stick uh, and they're criticized heavily by the U.S. And so I think part of the confusion on the definition of strategic autonomy is also due to that. How can the Europeans make the Americans happy when whichever way they go, basically, it doesn't end well for them? Well, there's two separate issues, though, right? There's the question of whether they're spending and whether they're spending um, on autonomous capabilities. And then there's the question of where they're spending it. Whether Are they spending it in U.S. companies or European companies or foreign companies? Uh, I think the U.S. doesn't really care about the first question. Uh, they don't really care uh, whether the w- whether there is a strategic uh, autonomous European defense. They don't really care whether uh, really even that even that much how much Europeans spend on defense what they care about uh, what the Trump administration cares about is exactly what was in that letter is whether they're spending it on U.S. companies on U.S. on U.S. arms manufacture on U.S. arms exports and it seems to me that um, it would make sense for Europeans to separate those two issues out and to think about well okay in the in the first instance we want to build our capabilities and in the second instance we can figure out where to buy them. But do you not think that if you really want to be autonomous, you need to make some of the kit yourself? Pro- probably, yeah. I mean, not not necessarily. I mean, it depends on how much how much you're willing to rely on that on whether you define autonomy as having the capabilities or being able to build the capabilities. Um, I think that uh, in the future of the defense industry, no country is going to be autonomous in the second sense. Even the United States already it really isn't. But, you know, I think that that's that it is typically something that people think about very hard is can we have a defense industrial base that supports our autonomous capability? But I guess I feel as if there is a lot of uh, sort of misdirection in this debate that the that the Americans say they're talking about European defense spending when they really mean European defense spending on American arms. And the Europeans say that they're talking about defense spending when they're actually talking about uh, whether they're going to get the U.S. to spend for them or not. So did you um, get any sense from the survey about how they, the different countries divide on those different areas? They are, I think it's mostly about the decision-making autonomy. And this is where, this is precisely uh, just what Jeremy mentioned. I think what we get uh, into um, into the paper very regularly is that this is not about completely decoupling from the U.S. or NATO at all that European strategic autonomy and NATO cooperation are complementary. But the decision-making aspect is extremely important because this is where uh, the act of independence is probably the strongest and and I guess the most difficult also for the U.S. to to comprehend. But it's being able sometimes not to ally with the U.S. on issues where European and American interests do not align. I think this is where it's more complicated. And this is where also, I guess, we go beyond uh, the autonomy of action um, aspect, because it's not just about creating a European industrial base. We know that this has been extremely complicated, that cooperation between different national member states, uh, defense industries has not always proven to be helpful. Uh, The European fighter aircraft has still not uh, materialized. So 
there are many issues on, on which I guess this is not going to move forward, but autonomy in decision-making is one where most member states agree upon and, and where Europe can move forward the quickest. And what about the different um, dimensions of, of uh, Europe's level of ambition in these areas? You have quite a nice chart where you ask people what should lie at the heart of uh, our ambition. Is it about post-conflict stabilisation, crisis management, first entry missions or, um, or collective defence? So an overwhelming number of member states uh, see European strategic autonomy as uh, regarding post-conflict stabilization and crisis management. And I think that makes sense because these are the dispositions that exist in the Lisbon Treaty. And this is what uh, European security policy was, was made for initially. But we also know that the, the geopolitical environment has significantly changed since then. And so, uh, of course, there's a fear that if we go for territorial defense, which is usually NATO's purview, then, uh, then it's redundant with NATO's mission. But it's not, it's not just about uh, collective defense. It's also about being able to do first entry missions and higher end operations. And, and there are even a few countries, typically Spain, uh, who argues that its current security guarantor is NATO, that sees the EU as having the potential to become a security organization. And we probably need to work more towards maybe convincing other member states that uh, the EU has that potential too. You have to help me out with this, though, Tara, because every time you say NATO in that sentence, it sounds to me like you're talking about a sort of outside organization. Maybe you really mean the United States, but NATO is the member states. If, if, if Spain creates a capability, it's part of NATO de facto. NATO has none of its own capabilities. And if it creates a if it, it, it's not as if there is the option to sort of create a, a to move that Spain can move toward crisis management and away from territorial defense and have NATO do territorial defense. NATO is Spain. NATO is the capabilities that the member states uh, well up. And if they move from an American perspective, if these member states move into a separate mission, it doesn't matter whether they say nice words about being about NATO if they're, they're denying capabilities to NATO. I don't see it that way. I think the way we presented it in, in the paper is that today, what Spain says, and it's also what the Baltic countries tell us, is that uh, for them, NATO is the security guarantee for Europe. That they don't see as of today, Europe is being able to provide that, but they do see the potential for it. And it's, it's, I think the EU could do collective defense and NATO could do collective defense. I don't, I don't think we need to dissociate them all the time. I think this is where... I think you can't disassociate them because they're they're basically two hats on the same body. Well, it's Sweden and Ireland and the United States, so that's the big one. But but they have a you know they have twenty two common members, I believe twenty one or twenty two common members. If the EU moves into collective defense, by definition, so does NATO, and if if they move away from collective defense, so does NATO. Well, they, the big one which uh, is going to change though is, is Britain which is eventually going to be in NATO and not in the European Union. How does that fit into your story, Tara? This is uh, one of the issues where we've had to discuss whether we were talking about European Union, EU strategic autonomy, or Euro European strategic autonomy. And so... 
So is Britain part of strategic autonomy or is it a threat to strategic autonomy? <laughs> or both. <laughs> the question is, after Brexit, if it happens, do we maintain European security and defence cooperation within the institutions or do we create a system where, of course, the UK as the other uh, nuclear weapon state in Europe, in addition to France, and a major military contributor, uh, how do we manage to get to, to maintain it inside, not only with the autonomy of action aspect, but also autonomy of information and autom autonomy of decision-making. And how do we keep the UK part of this decision-making process within Europe to determine what are Europe's security interests? And I think one of, one of the ideas that we need to explore more and that we mentioned briefly uh, is the idea that's been proposed both by President Macron and Chancellor Merkel of a European Security Council, the format of which has not been determined yet, but which would clearly be an area where the UK would be convened uh, with other member states, other European member states, and would be able to contribute militarily, but also but also with the autonomy of information aspect that we've not mentioned so much, but, but really giving access to intelligence that is complementary to the ones that other European secret services have. And what did the different member states say to that? Was there any... Uh, unity in terms of what to do with the UK? Most of them, a vast majority of them agree that the UK needs to be kept in, especially because if the UK is kept in, then we can keep talking about nuclear deterrence, we can keep talking about the transatlantic relationship, of course, NATO and conventional and non-conventional forms of strategic autonomy, especially in, in the current environment. So... We need the, the UK in, and I, there is no country that disagrees with the fact that the UK needs to stay in on security issues. Though France has been leading the charge to shut the UK out of a lot of the different bits of strategic autonomy, whether it's PESCO um, or Galileo. European Defence Fund. Or the European Defence Fund. Well, one could argue, on the contrary, that the UK has not always been the most helpful in the decision-making process of the European Defence Agency, you know. So I think it seems to me that since Brexit has been initiated, uh, Great Britain's position on, on its role in these processes has changed quite a lot. So I guess if, if it is part of the European Security Council, it might want to take part in, in more initiatives also that keeps it in. This, this is science fiction, I don't know. But I... Yeah, but this, this sort of leads us back to the beginning. It seems like you're sort of saying um, that um, the Europeans welcome Britain into uh, any sort of European strategic autonomy concept, but only on European terms. Uh, and so you're, and that's obviously something which has created a lot of friction within uh, already in the Brexit process. And, you know, I'm not really interested, frankly, in whether who, which one of them is right or fair, but it does seem like it's a recipe for the kind of division that we've seen between the UK and particularly France, but also its other European partners uh, on this type of issue that Galileo and EDF have been a harbinger of. And it's, it's quite frightening. And it, it stands, to me, it stands very much at odds with the sort of people standing up uh, as they often do and say, well, of course, we welcome your UK. It's an essential security partner. If it is, there's probably going to have to be a more nuanced bargain with them. They're just not going to buy into European security arrangements on the level of a Norway or something. You know, my sense is on European strategic on European strategic issues and European security generally, 
we tend to be very hard on ourselves and to only focus on what hasn't worked. Uh, but there are many other issues in EU internal affairs where member states disagree and sometimes it doesn't work out and there are no joint communiques that are published in the end because we've not managed to reconcile all the different positions. And we tend to make this more of a focus on these strategic issues, but I think that might be true for others. And more importantly, they might not have agreed at some point, but they might agree in the future. And I think we need to pursue the efforts all the efforts that can be made for the conversations to keep, to, to be maintained, to keep going on, for people to meet and to ensure that it's not just uh, about treaties and political negotiations, but also human to human, uh, scholar to scholar contact, that's important too. And I'm, I'm not saying that we are managing to reconcile everyone's views, that's precisely, I think we've not managed to do that, but it's not because we've not managed until now that we should get up and we won't find a perfect solution. I think this is what we've been saying. Brexit has also been postponed generally because we've not managed to find the perfect solution that works for both the EU and the UK. But I think we should remain hopeful that that might happen at some point in the near future. And the same goes for European strategic autonomy with the UK in. So, Tara, we're coming to the end of our time, but there's one other very intriguing um, dimension to your work, which we haven't talked about yet, which is China. Um, you look at how far that fits into the idea of strategic autonomy for different member states. You want to talk us through that as well? Yes. So we've been very surprised by the figures that we found. Um, I have to say, when we were drafting the survey, the questionnaire, it seemed like an obvious question for us, uh, because China's inroads into Europe has featured quite highly in the strategic debate for a few years now. And we were extremely surprised to discover that for 15 of the member states, China was not part of the discussion. And for the remaining who said that it was, they discussed, they, they believed that China was part of their discussion on European strategic autonomy, uh, only because of the inroads into Europe it was making uh, in areas ranging from political influence to technology and economic interests. You can see also clearly that uh, um, China has been working quite efficiently uh, with the initiation of the 16 plus 1 framework, uh, which was a format that was launched in 2012, a cooperation format between Beijing and 16 Central and Eastern European countries. And out of these 16 uh, EU member states, uh, out of these 16 European countries, sorry, 11 are EU member states. And so this is one of the moments where the EU was started to be alarmed about China's will and capacity to divide and rule the union. Uh, there are very concrete consequences actually to that. Uh, Greece joined the 16 plus one framework, making it a 17 plus one in 2017. And Hungary and Greece, Hungary is also part of the format, have, uh, they've been very reluctant to criticize China's human rights records, and they've even blocked an EU statement on the matter. So now there are 12 EU member states who are part of the 17 plus one, 17 plus one framework. Uh, and out of these 12, eight declared in our survey that the, China was not part of, of the discussion on European strategic autonomy. So, that's actually quite interesting. And even in, in what we would call the bigger member states, the UK, France and Germany, actually out of the three, only the UK and France say that China is part of uh, their country's discussion on strategic autonomy. And 
Germany, surprisingly, because actually it seems that the Huawei and 5G network debate is quite strong in Germany. Germany has declared that it didn't feature into, his, into its debate. So there might be an evolution. It would probably be interesting to conduct the same survey in a year's time to see to what extent this has changed, especially with, with the new development that we have uh, with the Hong Kong situation. But the figures that we got, we got were very surprising and let us believe that probably uh, not many European countries are aware of, of China's strategy. Uh, we didn't mention the Belt and Road Initiative either. So there might be uh, some work to be done on, on that in the future. Okay. Tara, um, in one of our earlier reports uh, that your colleague Manuel wrote uh, as well, um, you, about nuclear deterrence, I think we called it eyes tight shut, which kind of gave the Im- implicit thesis, which is that basically if, you, if you're not really working on nuclear deterrence, you're not really doing anything on strategic autonomy uh, because nuclear deterrence underlies all sort of autonomy in the modern world. That, that report basically had the view that, that Europeans weren't really engaging on the issue of nuclear deterrence with the, with the, um, with the partial exception of the French What did you find out in terms of looking at uh, whether the countries saw nuclear deterrence as a key element of strategic autonomy or how they understood that? It was also, I guess, uh, another area where they kept their eyes tight shut. Um, It remains a very sensitive issue. There are quite a few countries that declared that nuclear deterrence was beyond the level of ambition the EU should have on strategic autonomy. Seven countries that declared that nuclear deterrence is problematic under any circumstances. Uh, only Estonia declared that strategic autonomy should include and Europe needs a nuclear capability. And uh, three countries that declared that it should include it, but that the French and British deterrence were sufficient. And so what we what we had said in, in the nuclear deterrence uh, COCAD was that there was very little intellectual trusted work that was being done, that we had given up on having an intellectual debate on this issue in Europe. And I think this is what we've seen also on the scorecard on on European strategic autonomy. Um, In 2013, two of our colleagues had published at UCFR a paper that basically concluded that uh, Europe was strategically cacophonic uh, and that and what the point that we were making in this one is that we would need to move from the strategic cacophony to to get to strategic autonomy at some point, and that needed uh, some shared strategic thinking. And probably to move beyond the usual suspects, to move be, beyond the debate that's been happening in Brussels, in in Paris, in Berlin, in London, and maybe go to countries who are not so convinced uh, that the French or British uh, deterrent work or are sufficient or protect them. And I think this is our responsibility too. Great. Well, thank you very much, Taro. If you have enjoyed our discussion so far, you should head straight to our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast, where you will find a link to the full report, Independence Play, Europe's Pursuit of Strategic Autonomy, which is written by Ulrika Franke and Tara Varma, but they worked with experts in every single one of the member states and as well as the wraparound essay, which um, Tara and Ulrika wrote at the beginning, there are potted summaries of the national circumstances in every single country 
whether they're in NATO or not, how much they spend on defence, what PESCO projects they do, as well as their attitudes on three dimensions, how they think about strategic autonomy, what the level of ambition is, and the transatlantic dimension. It's the most complete, comprehensive, and interesting survey into this topic anywhere in the world. So it will be a crime if you don't head to our website. But for now, from Tara Varma, Jeremy Shapiro, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. If you've enjoyed listening to us, then do let your friends, family, and acquaintances know about us by writing about it on your social media page or ours, or giving us a ratings on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen to it uh, on. But for now, from all of us, it's goodbye. The Research of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenbosch and our editor is Abel Ribink.